0: The pharmaceutical industry has rapidly adapted to promoting prescription drugs to young people on TikTok, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Yet it can't be troubled to include adolescents and young adults in clinical trials for these products. The industry needs to address this hypocrisy. The body of an 18 year old is far different than that of a 60 year old. How much more needs to be clarified for us to be finally recognized as a separate developmental age.
1: That was Sneha Dave, an activist working to empower adolescents and young adults with chronic and rare conditions, and executive director of a nonprofit organization called Generation Patient. Reading from her first opinion essay, "If pharma can market to youths by TikTok, it should include them in clinical trials." I'll bring you our conversation afterward about Color Code, a new podcast from Stat. The
2: current experiences of, of, of black people when it comes to their interactions with the medical community or doctors is also an issue sometimes they might go to see a doctor and feel like they're not being listened to or they're not heard and and how does that play into this overall problem of, of, of mistrust in, in the black community of the medical establishment
1: I have worked in major white hospital institutions and I have been dismayed by the way in which my colleagues have treated black patients and I have, Uh, endeavored to to call that behavior out and to try to rectify it.
2: Hey there, my name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter here at STAT, and I'm excited to tell you about our new podcast that I'm hosting this spring. It's called Color Code. You know, our education related to health equity kind of sucks, like in med school, right? And I'm tired of having these conversations over and over and over. And someone is like, oh, no, it's not because of X, Y, and Z inequality. And I'm like, actually, it is. In a hospital, a code indicates some sort of crisis. And for so long, racism has created a crisis in American medicine. Color Code will take a hard look at the hidden and not so hidden forces behind the stark inequities faced by black clinicians and patients. We'll journey from a 1910 report that closed many black medical schools and explore modern-day algorithms that reinforce bias. You'll hear from clinicians, researchers, and everyday folk who are just trying to give and get good care. I mean, I have a mistrust in the medical establishment, and I'm a researcher. Like, and, 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 and part of mine is just of how I've seen providers treat my family members. Color Code is coming out Monday, March 21st. The first of eight episodes is all about medical mistrust within Black communities. We'll release episodes every other week. We'll also have photos and additional reading up on our website, so be sure to keep a lookout for that. Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Together,
1: let's raise the alarm. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you Sneha.
0: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. You
1: know, many activists are set on their journeys by early life experiences. Does that describe your path?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis when I was six years old. And as many people who have um, diagnoses at younger ages, it was always a very severe form. Um, I had numerous flare-ups. And in high school, I had the colectomy surgery, which is the removal of my large intestine. And so I now live with a J pouch, which sort of functions in place of my large intestine. And also a couple of rare comorbidities that come along with um, inflammatory bowel diseases.
1: You know, inflammatory bowel disease is sometimes described as an invisible or a non-visible disease. How does that add to the difficulty of living with it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, you know, A lot of people do classify IBD, um, inflammatory bowel diseases, as invisible, but for a lot of us, it is very visible at times. So I weighed about 60 pounds when I was a freshman in high school. So it's very clearly um, very sick. Um, But now I think um, most people would not know that I had, you know, I'm living without a colon and I'm still, you know, very much part of the medical system. So I think it's really unique in a lot of ways in that finding that peer support um, is really difficult at this age because a lot of people will just go about their normal lives not wanting to talk about um, a chronic illness. And so I think it's really important um, for more visibility to these issues when the conditions are not as visible. Um, but I would say, yeah, with IBD and other conditions, for the most part, they are non-visible, but um, they can also, you, you can also definitely tell when someone sort of is um, at their sicker moments.
1: And w- you said now. So by now you're how old?
0: I'm 23 years old now.
1: And is, is this your post-college phase of life you've entered?
0: Yes, it is. And it's wonderful. Um, I really <laughs> enjoyed college, and it was really fun. I got to create my own major. Um, I majored in both journalism and chronic illness advocacy. So it was really, um, really cool to just bring my personal experience coupled with um, some more academic experiences within um, the field of chronic illness advocacy more broadly. And I think um, my journalism major also really to the way that we at Generation Patient operate in terms of trying to be as critical as possible about all issues and really trying to maintain our independence where um, whenever we can.
1: So when you were younger, you organized the Crohn's and Colitis Young Adults Network to connect teens and young adults living with IBD, and then you created something called the Health Advocacy Summit, which was an event for high school and college-age students with chronic illnesses. Are there a lot of people who fall into that category?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So there, um, unfortunately, as um, the op-ed sort of illuminates, there's not a lot of information about adolescents and young adults. So there's, you know, more research and understanding about peds patients and adults patients, adult patients, although not enough for pediatric patients as well. I just want to clarify. But um, for adolescents and young adults we're often forgotten as a separate developmental age in a separate age group. Um, And many of us have very, very severe disease at at this age. And most people know that the younger that you have a condition, generally the more severe it is. So, um, and a lot of us, at least the young adults that I've worked with um, and myself also have a lot of different comorbidities that. Um, present maybe in rare, um, present as rare or complex conditions. And so um, it's a really unique age demographic. And I think we're finding more and more people. However, we would really love for researchers to sort of focus more on our age demographic as more and more of us are being diagnosed in childhood.
1: So young people taking, young people with chronic diseases who are taking medications for them are usually taking drugs that have been tested and approved in older people. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So it really depends. I think, um, you know, depending on what your definition of young adulthood is, and that's another thing, it hasn't really been as well defined as it should be. Um, And so, you know, zero to 18 is generally pediatrics, at least in the medical system. And then 18 and up is um, adults, um, the sort of the adult side. And so it really depends where you fall in within that sphere. So, um, I mean, when I was in high school and in middle school, um, I was taking drugs that were, I believe not, at least one of them was not approved for pediatrics, but I needed to take it um, because I was running out of options really quickly. And even now, just as sort of a side note, um, a lot of people say that the IVD space, you know, it, there is a lot of research going on, but a lot of people say that the treatment options are great, and that they're you know vast, and there's so much out there. But you know, I'm 23 years old. I'm sort of running out of treatment options. I'm still on biologics, and I've had you know major surgeries, and so um, I think there's a little bit of a disconnect, especially when we're talking about very early onset. IBD and the the really lack of treatment options as we're growing up, Um, and it seems like a lot of these treatment options, it's just going from one step to the other. So it's like I'm you know I try one medication and then a couple months or a couple years later I'm on a different one, Um, but there's still sort of these um, complex biologics and monoclonal antibodies. So um, I think that's really important for us. The other thing is is that. A lot of these side effects um, are often very scary. Um, just personally, I am one that has always had side effects with whatever medications I've taken, and so and, and generally, generally the more severe ones as well. And so, um, I think that's something that's really important to recognize: is that with you know these accelerated approvals and with everything trying to happen so fast, it seems like now. Um, I feel like in some ways we're not prioritizing safety. And for me, and I think for at least some of my peers, it's probably the most important thing um, to think
1: about. What kinds of side effects are you talking about?
0: For example, um, nasal polyps, which is um, pretty common, I would say, in younger folks. But it's a little frustrating because now I'm going to be prescribed another monoclonal antibody for this. So it's sort of just like, you know, you're prescribed one thing if you get side effects and you need treatment options for the side effects. And it's just like a spiral um, a lot of times. And I'm really grateful, you know, I want to clarify, I'm really grateful for the treatment options that exist, but I think we can do better um, in terms of safety and side effect monitoring.
1: You mentioned that you've had an experience that was notable enough to be made into what the medical literature calls a case report, the description of what happened to a specific patient. Do you think that your side effects um, might have happened either with less frequency or you might have been able to spot them earlier if the drugs had been tested in uh, adolescents and young adults?
0: Absolutely. I think that our bodies are so vastly different um, than older adults. And I was even talking to my family about this. Um, this is something that I first thought of when I started experiencing this, those side effects, because it seemed like the young adults that I was talking to that were on the similar drug also we're experiencing um, more side effects than what I was hearing from older adults um, or just adults in general um, or from a lot of these medical professionals who are on Twitter. And um, what's really interesting is that, you know, I'll go on IVD Twitter, which is very, very big, um, and I'll see a lot of doctors, you know, um, tweet about this medication and how safe it is. Um, but it's hard to really know that when it hasn't even really properly been tested on all age demographics. Um, and so that's something that I think is really important. And it is really interesting to know um, that our age demographic, we're in such a transitional period, isn't acknowledged even by I think a lot of um, adult GI providers as a separate um, demographic to treat and to really recognize as, as different.
1: So you opened your essay and read the excerpt at the top of this, um, this episode by talking about pharmaceutical companies marketing to adolescents and young adults on TikTok, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Can you describe a couple of the ads or promotions you've seen directed at young people?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this is um, pharma uh, direct to consumer advertising on social media is something that we are as an organization really interested in because we're seeing more and more of it both with influencers, larger influencers, but also micro influencers. And so um, I will say that there's a migraine medication in particular, um, Nurtec ODT. It's a it's a migraine medication, which also happens to be pretty expensive, um, I should just point out. But um, it's really interesting because we haven't seen a lot of regulation from um, the FDA or FTC. Obviously, FDA is more in charge of the prescription um, medications, but it's been really interesting because we haven't seen enough regulation. Um, there's a memo of understanding we found between the FDA and FTC that is from, I think, 1971, and it kind of is probably like one of the more clear um, uh, um, MOUs or kind of articles that we found about what's under FDA versus FTC. And it's um, also really fascinating because there's a broader argument about influencers right now happening, um, but within prescription drugs, there hasn't been as much. So again, NERTECH ODT has been an example. Um, there's also a constipation medication, which has been heavily marketed on TikTok. Um, and there's, I think, some case studies written about that as well. Um, But basically, like, you know, they'll use a really fun way to capture our attention. And then they'll take us to an unbranded website, which then leads to a branded website. And so we're seeing a lot of these different tactics. And it's really unclear about... So uh,
1: Hang on one second. Like what I probably wouldn't know what those tactics are if, you know, you held them up in a sign right now. What kinds of um, tactics are you thinking about or are you seeing that companies are using?
0: Yeah. So I think there's a couple. Um, one is like, a you know, being very fun and funny and using some like interesting different types of like maybe popular music. Another one is very much narratives and storytelling. So when they're, um, reaching these influencers, um, just for example, Nastia Lukin, who is an Olympic, um, gold medalist gymnast, um, when they will use her for, to advertise, um, you know, whatever medication they'll use her story and her Olympic story um, as as part of that advertisement, and to me that's very scary because when we're thinking about the, the demographic of users that uses um, social media, it's really. A lot of younger folks, and um, you know, there hasn't been a lot done, but we generally know that health literacy levels are probably lower in in young adults um, and people who are using social media um, or all these followers as well. And so, I think that's something that we're really worried about as well as the way that a lot of this information is presented. Because I don't think as a whole, I am, you know, against direct-to-consumer advertising as a whole, but I think it's the way that it's presented um, and sort of, in my opinion, sometimes very manipulative tactics to reaching patients and particularly younger patients because that's who um, a lot of um, the followers are composed of for these micro-influencers or influencers as a whole.
1: And so just how young are we talking about? Are we talking about 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds?
0: Yeah, so that's a great question. It's kind of hard to say because a lot of times... um, you know, younger people can get on these social media platforms, even though they're not legally allowed to. In TikTok, I would say there's probably younger users than there are even younger than Instagram. I would say I believe, um, I believe it's the average age for TikTok is 10 to 19, um, and it's a little bit higher for TikTok, um Instagram. And so, um, we're really capturing the attention of um, younger users who probably look up to these influencers in a lot of ways too. So.
1: So you made the point about marketing to, I think you made the point about marketing to illuminate the underrepresentation of adolescents and young adults in clinical trials. I read um, yesterday in a journal called Therapeutic Innovation and Regulatory Science that of clinical trials listed in clinicaltrials.gov, the national repository for information on clinical trials, adolescents are eligible, I stress eligible, to enroll with adults in under one quarter of phase three trials for asthma, atopic dermatitis, inflammatory bowel disease, and COVID-19, all of which affect a large number of adolescents. But eligible doesn't mean that trials are actually including adolescents and young adults. What have you been learning about their representation in clinical trials?
0: It's one thing to get in front of adolescent and young adult patients in terms of um, providing them the information that these clinical trials are available, which is, I think, a huge problem in itself. Um, a lot of us are just not familiar with clinical trial processes or are just unsure of really where to go. And I mean, social media is an obvious way to recruit adolescent and young adult patients. There isn't a better platform, really, platforms out there. Um, but I would say, you know, retention and just actual enrollment of us is a whole nother battle. Um, I actually just declined being part of a clinical trial um, because of a lot of reasons one of which was the amount of time that was expected of me. Um, So for this particular clinical trial, it was, um, you know, 20 to 30 minutes of questionnaires every day for a few weeks. Oh my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, if you know me, like I have a lot of medical stuff going on. So I really try to um, reduce the amount of, you know, administrative work I have to do in terms of um, having to, yeah, deal with um, the medical system. But yeah, so with this particular medication, I also would have to go through insurance to get that approved. Um, You know, I would be paying for that um, as well for whatever out-of-pocket costs there are, which is, you know, fine, I guess, in some ways. But the barriers to even getting the medication right now have been so, so large, even though it's, you know, that particular medication is very much indicated for my um, condition. And so I'm really struggling with that. The other thing is, is that when when um, you know these trial sites send us information, it's really hard to read them and to really understand them. Um, they're just you know presented in a very gray mm. manner. Um, it's just wording and it's just so long to read. Um, and I actually had to ask my parents to help me break it apart and it was you know that's when I really recognized that this would be a mm. 20 to 30 minute time commitment every single day for at least a few weeks at a time. Um, and you know, the pay was about $70 for each time that I, um, went to a clinical trial site, and they would compensate for travel and housing and everything. But that's just also not enough for a lot of us who are, you know, financially independent for the first time, and who are going to be spending so much of our time and our own money on this medication. And, you know, the integrity of real world evidence is so important, but it's also so important to make things and content accessible, um, and to make it more approachable and to also fairly compensate. Because Regardless of you know how you view seventy dollars, that is not fair compensation for um, the amount of time that it takes for us um, to complete a lot of this information.
1: So, if young people are underrepresented, young people of color must be like, multiply underrepresented.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I don't have data to back this up, because I think, you know, there's not a lot of data besides the adolescent young adult cancer space. But I mean, even just thinking about my family, my parents are both immigrants from India. And just growing up, I mean, we did not have a lot of great experiences within the medical system. There were a lot of different things, like when I would have a um, dietitian. You know, come during my outpatient visits or during the end of my inpatient stays, um, you know, the food was so vastly different. It was so hard and (laughs) difficult to navigate um, almost everything because of a lot of different cultural differences. And so um, I think that's, you know, something that has really built up. And I've also just personally lost a lot of trust in the medical system because of the numerous side effects that weren't previously indicated on a lot of these medications, but that I just have um, you know, developed by chance, I guess. Um, and I, and I, the other thing is I don't want to speak for everyone cause we don't have the data, but, um, at least for the people that I work with, the, um, you know, young adult patients that I'm very close with, they also have not, you know, had the greatest responses in terms of, um, safety to a lot of these medications. And some I know have had to switch because of a lot of issues. So absolutely. And I think that's a whole other issue is is kind of regaining trust with a lot of um, our groups and also just knowledge and awareness about what clinical trials are, because they're so unapproachable in so many ways.
1: So not including adolescents in clinical trials has happened partly because of ethical issues, sometimes about maybe young people can't really give informed consent. And the thinking that adolescents should be included only if the information gained by their involvement couldn't be gained by including adults. Do you buy that?
0: I I think with ethical arguments, there's, you know, two very valid sides um, for every sort of argument. I will say, though, when you are a patient that is very close to, for example, losing your colon like myself, And you want a treatment option. um, A lot of us are, you know, going to want to try one last thing before we end up losing something that you know you can't have a transplant for for the rest of our lives. Um, And you know, this is just talking from my ulcerative colitis standpoint. But when you think about patients with Crohn's, um, for a lot of them, it doesn't make sense to have the colectomy surgery, and so they're sort of. Always thinking about treatment options. And so I would just say that a lot of us are at a stage where we, you know, really kind of need something else. And um, it just goes back to the argument that we just don't have enough great options right now um, for those of us who are younger and have more severe disease. And so, um, you know, informed consent is so important. Um, But again, I think, you know, it just goes back to the fact that if you're out of treatment options, you're going to try whatever is left.
1: You're more willing to take more risk,
0: right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think you know the other thing is that um, clinical trial monitoring. Actually, part of the reason why I wanted to go get into a clinical trial is because I would, I would um, once I started this medication, I'll be on two monoclonal antibodies, and it's very scary for me to be on two mAbs because um, there's not enough data about you know long term hmm. um, um, effects of that. But um, I would hope that I'd be more monitored. In a clinical trial, if um, if I wasn't um, in a clinical trial, so that's the reason I wanted to do it, but it was I just wouldn't have enough time and energy to do so. So, um, yeah, I think that's one benefit of a clinical trial is the more monitoring.
1: You know, I think people sometimes overlook the benefit to the participant of a clinical trial. That most people think, oh, you're doing something altruistic for everybody else, but but sometimes, as you've just described there may be real immediate benefits for yourself as a participant.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the notion of altruism within clinical trials is just also so unfair because um, like, you know, patients should not be made to feel guilty or um, they shouldn't be made to feel like they're doing something grand for the future because it is really hard to live with these conditions. And um, like I, you know, it's, it, it makes me feel, sound terrible, but I just could never do something which requ- would require so much time, so much of my energy for an altruistic reason. I would need some sort of compensation or just recognition that I would be more monitored um, because ultimately, you know, all of this is an opportunity cost for us in terms of time, in terms of where else we could be spending our money um, and resources as well, um, because, you know, regardless, you know, we will incur um, some sort of costs um, um, if we enroll in a clinical trial. So, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, the benefit of getting more monitored is I think probably like the best, um, part of a clinical trial, at least in my perspective.
1: The rationale for protecting adolescents regarding clinical trials sounds a lot like the rationale for not including women of quote, childbearing age in clinical trials, which the FDA put in place in 1977, I think. Um, And it was partly in response to thalidomide, the sedative that caused um, uh, really terrible birth defects. Um, And it took many years. So it took many years. And the appointment of finally the first female head of the NIH, Bernadette Healy, and finally a law that Congress passed in 1993 to almost require women to participate in clinical trials— and that worked. All of that finally worked. I, I saw a review in JAMA Network Open not long ago showing that of all clinical trials between 2000 and 2020, 50% of the participants were women. And that's a big jump from 1990. Um, the, the newest Wrinkle in that is women of uh, pregnant women are excluded from trials. And we we discussed that on the podcast pretty much about this time last year. Um, What do you think it's going to take to get more adolescents in clinical trials?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to take a lot more advocacy from our perspectives um, and just our experiences, again, because our demographic is so complex. And even when you stratify it between adolescents and young adults, there's just so much happening, you know, because a 24 year old is not the same as even a 14 year old. Um, And so, you know, 10 years makes a huge difference. Even five years makes a huge difference. And so I think um, that real recognition of the different, different developmental phases is going to be so important. But I really think it's going to be the the most important thing is for us as um, adolescent and young adult patients to be really narrating a lot of our experiences and our stories. And I'm really grateful for a platform like this because, you know, before this, there hasn't been a lot of advocacy for our age demographic as it pertains to clinical research um, or There hasn't been as much public facing advocacy and we really need that um, again because more and more of us are being diagnosed now than ever um, at younger ages and inevitably um, more and more of us are going to be transitioning and and making that um, transition and transfer into adulthood so. um, it's really important now, I think, more than ever, and for us to be really proactive about this issue, because I would hate to have to wait another five years, for example, for the user fees to be in discussion uh, um, again, or just to, you know, to lose an opportunity um, of and really lose time um, for us to be included in these efforts.
1: You suggested that instead of calling everyone from age 18 to 65 adults, there should be a Separate category for people age eighteen to twenty five. How come?
0: Yeah, um, so actually fun fact, I think you can join AARP when you're over fifty. So it's really mind boggling that an eighteen year old is, you know, grouped with a sixty four year old. It's uh not that there's anything wrong with sort of different ages, but my goodness, it was pretty shocking for me to see the FDA adverse event reporting system and to see this huge age demographic clumped together is one. Um, And so, I mean, I'm certainly not a medical professional, but from my perspective, I would think that 18 to 26, 25 is a separate developmental phase and developmental period. And then maybe taking it down from, you know, 26 to 30 or 35, uh, because again, that is a separate sort of phase. And I I still don't think it'd be fair to even classify a 30-year-old in a 60 or a 64-year-old in the same category. And if you look at the different stratifications on the FDA adverse event reporting system, um, they're a lot narrower for like, I think it's like 13 to 17. So, you know, before 18, it's they have appropriate, in my opinion, age stratifications, but above 18, it's sort of just completely um you know, you're you're with the 50 year olds. You're with the 60 year olds. So that's definitely pretty um, significant, in my opinion. And I'm not sure why that was why that was ever allowed to happen. And I would be really curious to um, understand the reasoning of why you know that was such a huge age group because it's a lot bigger than any of the other age groups represented in this reporting system.
1: Well, Sna, it seems like you've got uh, a really upbeat perspective even though you're facing some daunting situations. I I wish you and your colleagues at Generation Patient the best of luck. And I'll be watching to see what you personally do next.
0: Thank you so much, Pat. It was so great talking to you.
1: Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show, or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.